PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast where board studying continues to be enjoyable. My name is Blake Briggs. I'm joined by the usual Iltafat Hussein. What's up? For each 15-minute episode, you gain high-yield board knowledge, as we like to say, come for the stems, but stay for the content. You can sign up on our website for free updates and episode printed handouts, free review quizzes to test your knowledge, and you can do all this for free by going to our website at emboardbombs.com. I've noticed I've said that too quickly. People look at me funny when I'm telling them at work, so it's emboardbombs.com. We're also on Twitter at emboardbombs. We got a really special episode today. This is a, a twofer, as we call it, a two-parter oh, yeah. with the EM Over Easy team. joined by andy drew and tanner it is awesome having you all here yeah thanks for having us yeah excited to be here thanks for having absolutely. us absolutely we loved being on your episode on uh, clinical grind it was awesome for intracranial hemorrhage so guess what we're going to cover today let me guess same thing <laughs> jk we're covering uh, social work and dental pain Ooh. just kidding <laughs> we're gonna cover intracranial hemorrhage and iltifat's gonna lead us through an awesome question stem and we're gonna go over some highlights here and the best part about this is we're covering board relevant info in a clinical way and we got different opinions here so you don't have to hear just iltifat and i today knock it out iltifat for this question stem an ambulance arrives bringing a transfer from an outside hospital with a diagnosed intracranial bleed she's an 86 year old female with a past medical history of prior ischemic stroke afib and hypertension her blood pressure is 171 over 89 on arrival. The CT head and imaging confirms a 10 millimeter by 8 millimeter in size hemorrhage in the frontal lobe. You are anticipating a frail appearing female. Instead, you see a vibrant 86 year old that appears to be in her 60s. She ignores you initially and tells you not to take it personal because she's making a snap story for her grandkids about her overall experience. <laughs> She wonders if she can have your permission to live stream her care for her many followers. You politely decline. Obviously, the patient is alert and oriented. The neurological exam is completely unremarkable, of course. The patient is on warfarin or APID. She received vitamin K at an outside hospital. What is the initial best course in management at this time? Is it A, administer FFP, B, perform CTA, C, repeat neurologic exams every one hour. D, administer nicardipine. Or E, infuse prothrombin complex concentrate. What's the correct answer, Briggs? All right, we got choice E, infuse prothrombin complex concentrate, also known as PCC or in some parts of the country, K-Centra. We got an awesome jam-packed episode today. We're talking about ICH. Remember that ICH, this is the second most common cause of all strokes, number one being ischemic. And there's a lot of underlying pathologies we're not getting into, the most common being hypertensive vasculopathy. AV malformations are the most common cause in children. 
And you know, all these risk factors that we're going to have in our handout and more on the website, so we won't go into it. We don't want to waste precious time with our guests today. But really, the big thing is, is you know, hypertension, anticoagulant use is a risk factor. That's warfarin especially. And funny enough, there's a lower risk with DOAX um, or NOAX. What do you guys call them? They're DOAX to me. They're not novel anymore. DOAX for sure, because the novel coronavirus took novel away from it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is true. I heard NOAX said the other day, and I was kind of surprised. I've been calling them DOAX too. I still call them novel, but I'm also basic. That is so true on so many <laughs> levels. That's okay. We don't judge you. Oh. This is true. Although, a great question is, when do we stop calling a coronavirus that's been around for a year novel? But I feel like that's not for this or episode. Or has it been only around for a year? Okay, no, moving on. Moving, moving on. <laughs> so antiplatelets are also a small increased risk. It's debatable. We don't really know. No one really knows what aspirin, how much of a risk aspirin is. It certainly doesn't change indications for giving aspirin to people at risk for thromboembolic disease. The greatest predictor of hemorrhage expansion would obviously be, well, on blood thinners. <laughs> and also this thing called the spot sign, which is this contrast extravasation that you can see on the CT scan. And then of course, seeing any huge amount of ICH volume on baseline imaging. So obviously we already gone through these basic things that I want to introduce us to. The fact that hemorrhage enlargement is bad, obviously, and associated with neurologic deterioration, worse outcomes. So anything you can improve in the ED this directly helps the patient in the ICU later. So acting fast on some big, important stuff. So first, I want to poll the audience here and what they think in terms of presentation. We heard a great clinical grind on a um, somewhat misleading presentation of a patient with an ICH. And I'd love to hear what their take is on when they think, come to mind, board test question, and in real life, what is your classic ICH presentation? How does that differ or relate to subarachnoid, et cetera? I'd love to hear what their thoughts are. Ooh, you stumped Andy, which never happens. I see the look on his face. I wish our, I wish the listeners could see it. Stroking his chin. Stro he's stroking. That's uh, for sure. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll delve into this first that, um, it's really humbling when you start thinking about intracranial hemorrhage in real life. You know, we, classically for for teaching, it's the the sudden onset thunderclap headache. You know, is your your aneurysm bursting, and then other types of intracranial hemorrhage will present in different ways, including like your your intraventricular or your intraparenchymal hemorrhages being much more um, non-specific. And patients often in these situations will just present with altered level of consciousness or, or decreased level of consciousness. You know, I, I think the thing that classically clues me onto something going on. On, on a intracranial hemorrhage, often that subarachnoid bleed is is a patient who otherwise would be somewhat healthy, who had an episode of like sudden onset nausea, headache, maybe a a period where they had a decreased level of consciousness, but have returned to being lucid, and then inevitably they're hypertensive, right? To me, and and that's not just boards. I mean, that is how these patients present in real life, time and time again. I've seen a predominance people that their really only complaint once they're conscious again is they're vomiting without a good reason. Mm. It's mm -hmm. not something I can yeah. point to and say, oh, you smoke a bunch of weed. <laughs> <laughs> you are just puking for no other good reason than you're puking. Sure, it's not the Narcan. <laughs> reference our prior episode. <laughs> See part one. See part one of this two-part series. Uh, and, uh, and those are all great points. And especially when you're thinking about boards, when they're presenting that headache, and that patient with emesis, 50% you know, of these patients have that. Um, and obviously that's gonna be more common in your larger bleeds. Some of these small hemorrhages, it rarely cause headaches. 
also depends, you know, if you look at the neuro symptoms and location, that all really depends on the location. And it can present very much even like an ischemic stroke as well, depending on the location and size as well. That was going to be my one addition or addition to the presentation is this is where your neuro exam is very important. Just glossing over a neuro exam because they don't have any other major issues or you're not as concerned because they don't have, you know, the classic presentation. That's how you're going to miss a subarachnoid or intracranial bleed that you're not looking really closely for. Yeah, for sure. And uh, just based off that, what you just said, Tanner, um, I actually just posted something on Twitter today because it came up in our M&M conference today at our residency. By the way, at Blake Briggs MD, hashtag uh, shameless plug. So the big thing here is that think about your neuro exam. Documentation is so important here. And one thing that has recently come up and I noticed on Shift is a lot of people will go through these clicky boxes on Cerner or Epic and just put AAO times three, no focal deficits. And that is not a neuro exam. For sure. And so when you look at it, you know, when you're talking about making that diagnosis, definitely um, that physical exam is going to be critical. That CT head is going to be diagnostic for you. And the board love to do this whole thing where they'll say what's more sensitive, what's more specific, Mm -hmm. or what's, you know, this isn't one of those where you have to worry about, you know, aortic dissection, where you're trying to differentiate between MRI, CT, TE. In this case, MRI is going to be equal to CT for detection of acute intracranial hemorrhage. MRI is better for chronic intracranial hemorrhage. But again, for in, in the acute setting, if they give you that um, MRI option, it's going to be your CT scan. Anecdotally, I'll tell you the most uh, diagnostically accurate way of figuring out if there's an intracranial hemorrhage on these patients is if nursing calls you to get an order for Zofran when the patient throws up <laughs> on the CT scanner. Yes. Um, so when that happens, when they're laid flat and they're getting their scan, if they yeah. vomit, yeah. Then, then you know with, with like 90 plus percent certainty that th- that's your intracranial hemorrhage. It's, it's insane. It's insanely high. Yeah. Yeah. Is that um, called the uh, Drew criteria? What is that? Uh, well, I haven't patented it yet, so I don't okay. want to get... Uh, it's not an MD calc you're saying. Not no. Yet. Not oh, yet. Okay. okay. So, Blake, get into some of the cornerstones of therapy that has to happen real right. fast. There are a couple of key questions that you need to know right away. Absolutely. The two big things I want to ask the audience again... Number one, reversal anticoagulation. That's why that was the correct answer here. So this question is actually, despite the jokes and the Snapchat, I think is a really good question. And uh, I love it because it, it actually tells you multiple things that are right. But unfortunately on the boards, you know, and again, we don't make the rules here. And the big thing is that you would do technically all these things for this patient. Uh, it's maybe it's fresh frozen plasma. But the big thing here is that number one in your order of care for these ICH because we talked about it being the poorest predictor, is reversing anticoagulation. Mm-hmm. This is one of those times in medicine where, you know, there's a lot of debate in certain patients, do you reverse or stop the anticoagulation? This is a pretty much a no debate situation. Intracranial hemorrhage, no one is ever going to fault you on doing that in these patients, even how good they look. We all know that they have a higher risk of rebleeding later. And so number one here is going to be infusing some sort of reversal agent if it's available. The other answers in terms of performing CTA, that's good, but that's not an immediate life-threatening action you need to take. Repeating neurological exams for every one hour. Again, that's an ICU order, not really an ED action plan that you have. And finally, administering nicardipine is a big deal. Blood pressure is important. But again, what's more important is stopping the risk of rebleeding, stopping that hemorrhage accumulation, which is reversal of anticoagulation. And I want to get the take on um, what you three think more about that and specifically kind of what your agents you use, why we use one over the other, that sort of thing. 
So I think PCC, you brought it up, it's kind of become the gold standard. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember the day, and I'm not saying that I've been out that long, but I remember as a medical student, as an early resident where we didn't have PCC readily available. And so we were still doing the fresh frozen plasma, low dose of vitamin K. But now where PCC is basically part of any stroke algorithm, you have to have it available because it might be an intracranial hemorrhage. PCC by, by far is the right answer. And what I really like about PCC is outside of low molecular weight heparin, um, which you can still use it for, but it, it's really kind of become the the band-aid, the kind of duct tape of mm-hmm. reversals to where you can use it for Coumadin. And then the DOAX or the NOAX, as I call them, because I'm basic. <laughs> Hashtag vanilla. You can also use that as well because the, the reversal agents for the DOAX, they aren't widely used. They aren't widely available, but PCC now is, is kind of what everybody goes to. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in fact, in, in the hospital system that I work for, the, the novel anti-coagulant uh, reversal agents for your DOAX are only available at the neuro and trauma center. So I'm not at a uh, level one trauma center or a uh, interventional neurology center. So PCC is all I have. And, and that's what we're reversing initially with all that. And then uh, we can ship somebody to a receiving facility and have them start to prepare the, the next level of treatment, but uh, but not initially available. And, and cost is a huge factor in this. So clinically, that's something to, to keep in mind. Obviously, when you're taking a board test, we're not worried about cost of a procedure or a medication, but uh, there's a little bit of a difference between the clinical answer to most of this and, and the actual board answer. For sure, because whenever my pharmacist is mixing in that Kcentra he is looking at me or she is looking at me intently as the mix is happening and saying, are you sure you want to drop five to 10 G's right now? Just making sure. That, that's why they took it away from me. Then what do they say to you when you give Adnex Alpha? Are they saying, you sure you want to drop 50 G's or? Look, let's not get into Barry Nerd too, all right? We're not going to do that right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully that patient has stock in GameStop and they can be able to pay. <laughs> So yeah, we've said a few important things here. The DOAX, just to review test-wise, for uh, thankfully I've been tasked with saying these names. Uh, Iltifat got out of it this time. So yes. dibigatran, the classic reversal agent is adrasizumab. That's the way I say it. That's the way I'm going to stick with it. Is there any other accents we do? Ohio people, you got anything? That was beautiful. Thank no. you. <laughs> Thank you. If that's unavailable, like they said perfectly, PCC is the right answer. And then for rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban, batrexaban, Adnexa Alpha has made the presses recently after the past couple of years coming out. The good news is this really hasn't reached the boards yet because it's very new still. The bad news is, and we're not going to get into the clinical ramifications and debate, I'm not the biggest fan of this drug. I don't know what you guys think. I know it's not available at some of your facilities, but I'm not sold on it. They've never done an actual um, controlled trial between this and PCC not to mention the cost itself. So I'm really not sold on using this over PCC, but on the boards, they are never going to give you PCC and the reversal agent as two options. They would never do that. They're going to give you one or something completely wrong. Like you forgot that K-Centra is sponsoring this podcast. Yes. I forgot to mention that. So we'll, we'll take this out. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll clip it. Don't worry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry <laughs> about that. Yeah. F- FIBA tried to get us sponsored, but we, we they were offering way too low. Sorry about that. So Blood pressure management. Let's move on here and wrap this up. This is a debated area, and the guidelines are so shifting. I'm sure if you speak to, I know I have, speak to whoever is on call for neurology the next day, they'll tell you a different guideline, some of these blood pressure guidelines. It's almost as bad as the blood pressure guidelines for subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is a whole different whole different debate in terms of guidelines. But let's summarize the most basic general recommendations on the boards, and they're never going to give you a borderline case. If you have a really high blood pressure, you want to 
aggressively lower it to around 140 to 160 systolic blood pressure. It's greater than 220 or whatever. The weird gray area that no one really knows, and you're not going to be tested on it, is this 160 to 220. Now, board questions in general, especially in your oral boards, which who knows what's going to happen to that in a few years, is always going to want you to be a little more aggressive with these patients because they have a high mortality. And so they want to reduce the blood pressure to around 140 again. What do you guys see in your shops and what do you think about that? I think the biggest thing for me as a travel doc, I am working in different places at different times and often don't know uh, every single specific uh, algorithm that each individual neurologist or neuro ICU is going to use. So I try to stick with essentially the board answer, right? Uh, just try to approach it as best I can. And in the process of doing so, I'm also calling my consultant and conferring with them. That's a really good answer. What do you like to use typically? Usually it's whatever's available. Um, some of the places I work are very small and mm-hmm. like, I don't even have drugs like vancomycin. Um, so it can, it can be a little dicey at times, but usually one of the classic ones that's available is nicardipine and mm-hmm. most nursing staff are pretty comfortable with giving that as well. And so that's kind of my go-to, but it really would depend on where I'm at and and uh, what's available backups would be like uh probably esmolol because that's also easy to titrate as well mm-hmm. yeah i'm a big fan of initially sure. dosing these patients with labetalol uh to get blood pressure under control but long-term dosing of labetalol is not necessarily the answer so then switching to nicardipine or uh, clidovipine is is certainly the sustainable option in blood pressure control and if ever you want to be humbled, it's trying to control blood pressure in these patients. So as opposed to thinking of a hard cutoff for me, it's it's a range, right? I'm trying to get the blood pressure consistently between 140 to 160. Absolutely. And if I can keep it in that range, I've done a really good job. But the reality is I'll get it down to 145 over whatever. And then the next thing you know, I turn around or I sneeze and the patient's right back up to 190, <laughs> which is what makes this clinically such a difficult thing to actually manage. Yeah. And for me, whenever I talked about this came up actually with a resident case the other day. And to me, it's my goal is to get them at 160 and Absolutely. be with within 10 each way. So I kind of use the 150 to 170, even the 160 is my goal. Because again, like Drew mentioned, you'll it'll be sitting pretty with the appropriate dose and then boom, something will happen and their blood pressure will, will spike for a second. Um, and I'm a huge fan of nicardipine. Yeah, I really like what Drew said with giving labetalol. I've done that too uh, as the initial, your first shot, you're priming those receptors as you're getting your drip set up. Because so many things in medicine depends on where's your drip, how long does it take to get it? And this goes back to like DK and insulin. All those are great answers for the board test you're always going to pick nicardipine or clobidipine first. That's what they want. That's the right answer. But other options are completely right clinically. Labetalol, Esmolol, Enalapril. Remember that the board test question is not going to be thinking logistically like you are uh, because it's a perfect world and everything happens perfectly on a board test, which means that- ABM General's got everything. ABM General has everything you need and the consultants love seeing patients. And what you need to think about is- All you need to worry about is what's the correct agent. Don't think about, oh, how long does it take to get the drip set up? Do I even have this in my shop? It's it's perfect world. What do you have available? That's what you need to think about approaching this question. Any other thoughts from you three? Uh, Great review. Thanks so much for including us. Absolutely. Ildfa, why don't you take us out? I'd like to thank our colleagues at EMOverEasy. You can find them at EMOverEasy.com or on Twitter at EMOverEasy. They've been doing it for a while. They are professionals, awesome to listen to, and we love them. Give them some love on uh, the iTunes app store as well. Drop some reviews for them also. As we take you guys out, we have something really exciting to announce. Big news. Big news. news. Uh, you guys are the first three to hear about it. You guys really are the first to hear Ooh. about it. And uh, no, neither of us are pregnant. Um, no, but <laughs> cue the music real quick, Blake. Rapid Fire. So we are now creating the first ever rapid high yield 
podcast question bank. This is going to be a sister podcast to EM Board Bombs. We heard your requests, tweets, DMs, feedback, and your prayers. You liked our Board Bombs, but those were too big for you. You wanted something rapid fire. You wanted something quick. You wanted to be able to go through 10 questions while simultaneously making a trip to Costco. You wanted to be able to get through multiple questions on your way to work. While you love our banter, there are times you don't want to hear our lush voices and laughter. You wanted to be able to put your podcast at 2x and keep repeating questions until they were seared into your memory like a nice steak. Well, we heard you. We give the people what they want. And here it is, the first ever rapid fire question bank in podcasting history. It's going to be called EM Rapid Fire. We'll let you guys know where it's going to be. And it's going to be what you need to know, nothing more, nothing else. Coming out right before the IT, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. And we'll basically do a soft release. Absolutely uh, let you guys know. We'll tweet it out to you all so you can take a look at it. But I'd love to get y'all's opinion on it. But it's going to be a, a new way of studying for boards. Uh, you don't have to sit by the computer and drug through questions anymore. Uh, it'll be listening for questions on the go. No frills, no long explanations. Three minutes a question. Just rapid fire questions, what you need to know. And it's going to be really epic. We're excited about it. Cool. All right. That's been awesome. We'll do it again soon. And, uh, Really appreciate what you all do. Thanks for coming on.